Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome back to the podcast. This is episode two of season five. Today, I'm going to share a conversation I had with Kimberly Woodhouse. Now, I really didn't know much about Kimberly before, but um, she's amazing. She has more than two dozen best-selling books, and she's been writing for more than 20 years, so I don't know why I hadn't read her before, but she's great. She um, was amazing to talk to you from a historical fiction reading standpoint, but also as a writer. Like If you are an aspiring writer or a working writer, this is like a mini um, class on how to organize your writing life. So, I mean, that's not the whole thing. The first, we talk about the book a lot. Um, her latest book, which is set in the Grand Canyon in the beginning of the 1900s. And it's so fascinating what the book's about. But you're also going to love the writing information. I just found it fascinating. She almost convinced me to become a plotter instead of a pantser. Um, if you don't know what that is, a pantser is kind of the way I write, by the seat of my pants. I go where the story leads me. It's always been more time-consuming, but I've never been able to become a plotter instead, even though I am jealous of the plotters um, because I'm a fairly organized person in every other area of my life, um, or at least I try to be. So anyway, she almost converts me to become a plotter, and you'll have to stay tuned for that part of the conversation. But we had a wonderful conversation about all things Grand Canyon in history um, and then about writing. So listen in and enjoy this conversation with Kimberly Woodhouse. Kimberly, thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, your novel, A Mark of Grace, released January 3rd. It's the final installment in your Secrets of the Canyon series. Can you tell me about this series and this final book in particular? I'm super, super excited about this series because out of 30 plus published books that I've had over the last few years, this series has been in my heart probably the longest. I did mm. research for it back in 2008, 2009, and I've been back since, but my kids are only teenagers now, and now they're both adults and married, so it's oh. been a while, but um, I love it because I've always loved the Harvey girls, and mm -hmm. I wanted to find a really unique and fun location to set the Harvey girls stories at, and as soon as I went to the Grand Canyon and visited the El Tavar, I knew that that was where <laughs> I had to have the series because the El Tavar, once it was built, it was the crown jewel of the Harvey empire. Oh. So it's, it's a really fun series because there's a good bit of suspense and mystery in it along with the historical romance and a lot of really unique characters. Uh, the readers have, it's been wonderful hearing from all the readers and getting the letters and messages from them, how much they've enjoyed each story. So they all take place at the Grand Canyon at the El Tavar. The heroines are all Harvey girls. And in book three, A Mark of Grace, it's Ruth's story. And Ruth, the readers have been following her for the previous books. She has been a mentor and the head waitress and has been a really big secondary character in the books. And so ever since the first book came out, I've had readers saying, we can't wait to see Ruth's story. Please tell us that Ruth is going to have her own story. <laughs> So um, it's a lot of fun getting to get Ruth's story out of the page. 
Yeah. Um, so I really don't know much about the Harvey girls and I, maybe our listeners don't either. Can you kind of explain about them? Oh, sure. So there's actually a movie that Judy Garland was in called the Harvey girls Mm -hmm. and it doesn't give a lot of detail. (laughs) So you don't get a whole lot of the picture of what the Harvey girls actually did, but Fred Harvey was an amazing man. And just a brilliant man. And they call him the father of modern day marketing. Mm-hmm. And he's the father of what we think of, you know, the restaurant business, right? He really understood what it was going to take to take care of people in a, in a restaurant setting and how to feed them and to feed them well, because mm-hmm. when the railroad went through, there weren't places, there weren't just restaurants, you know, to stop at <laughs> along right. the way when they would have a stop. And so people had to bring their own food Or the train would stop at these little places and, you know, it'd be like food poisoning, you know, on the side of the road. (laughs) Um, It wasn't very good and it cost a lot of money. And so Harvey had approached the railroad and said, I have an idea. So along the ATSF railroad, he built, it's that's the Atchison, Topeka. And of course, I can't remember now. Um, <laughs> railroad. he built Harvey houses along the way. And so some of them were places that people could stay overnight if they needed to take a rest, you know, and stay overnight. Um, mm-hmm. Some places were just there for the meals. And so what would happen is the train would come through and the passengers would get off for 45 minutes and Harvey would serve this wonderful, um, huge meal in 45 minutes. So mm-hmm. the Harvey girls What's so unique about this is in an era when women, the only reputable job for a woman was a teacher, right? Mm -hmm. So Harvey opened up an entire world for them. And it was a very um, prestigious thing to be able to be a Harvey girl and to get the job. You had to go through quite the process, you know, to be a part of it and a lot of training. Right. Because everything was perfection and it was impeccable and it was all just pristine and the highest quality of everything. So if they got a stain or a spill on their apron, they had to change it. You know, they couldn't wear it right the day and they could serve all of the people that got off the train and give them this elaborate meal, many courses, you know, within 45 minutes and then get the people back on the train. So Harvey did venture out later and it was actually after his death. Most people don't realize that he had died when Mm -hmm. the bar was built because it still had his name on everything. Oh, wow. His name was synonymous with the industry, right? It was the empire. This was Fred. Oh, this is a Fred Harvey place. Let's stop Mm -hmm. there. Um, So he had died when his sons did the deal and made sure that the Eltevar was built there alongside the railroad on the very rim of the Grand Canyon. And it became the place, you know, especially for the wealthy to vacation and for them to go visit because before the railroad built the spur to go all the way to the edge of the Grand Canyon, it was like a 12 hour stagecoach ride. Wow. Just to get out there. And um, now there was this luxury hotel with fabulous meals and, and all of that. So it's a, it's a really cool thing if you want to get into the Harvey girls and, and where they were. And um, Tracy Peterson actually has a couple of series that include right. the Harvey girls, which is great. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so was it just thinking about the Harvey girls that inspired this whole series or was there something else that, that spurred it 
into your mind? <laughs> well, um, I don't want you to think I'm a crazy person, but <laughs> uh, this is, you know, I know you understand this, the mind of an author, you know, I was out there and when you go out there and you have your kids with you, right. And even though my kids were teenagers, they're older, you know, it's this mom thing. You get really worried because it's not like there's railings everywhere. Oh, you know, yes. it's yeah. the Grand Canyon's huge. Mm-hmm. And it is really deep and <laughs> it's a long way down. And I remember asking, you know, first I'm thinking about this whole mom protection thing, you know, make sure that my kids don't fall in. Right. Right. Um, and then I started asking all of the rangers and the official people, you know, out there. I was like, so how many people die you know, in the canyon every, every year? Because it's just, that's what I thought. I was like, oh my goodness. And yes. um, they actually pointed me to a book in the bookstore and the title is actually Death in the Grand Canyon. And it's how many, you know, stories over the years of interesting, you know, deaths that have taken place there. Mm-hmm. Um, so since I love suspense and, you know, mystery in my stories, you know, my brain kind of went to to that place is like, well, what kind of conflict, you know, could I have here? This is a really unique setting. And, yeah. and back when it was built in 1905, you know, this is just phenomenal and how far out it would have been. And Mm -hmm. there wasn't anything there, you know, at that point. So it's just a fascinating location. And I think for me, the ideas just began to spin because you look at the canyon and you can move your head, you know, an inch Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you're seeing something totally new and, and amazing. And so it just, it sparked a lot of ideas and I love Harvey girls. So um, my kids just started joking because every time I'd ask a question, you know, my son would go, mom's an author. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's, I was going to add, I don't think you're a crazy person, but I think it's that <laughs> thinking outside of the box or thinking of things that maybe everyone else wouldn't think of. That's what makes great authors. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's good to ask. We all do. We ask lots of questions, don't we, Allison? <laughs> yes, we certainly do. So, what do readers have to look forward in this final book in the conclusion of this series? Well, Ruth has been a beloved character for the readers and they really connected with her. So again, it's Ruth's story, but understanding once, since it is her story, once we dive in, you know, to her, something very major happens. Life changing happens to her at the end of book two, which is a gem of truth. And that experience is not only um, a, a real spiritual arc for her, but it has conflict in every area. It has conflict for her professionally. It has conflict for her physically, um, mentally. Every every aspect of her life has been affected right. by this incident. And so she has to deal with the fact that she's always been the mentor. She's always been the one guiding the younger women. She's been the mother hen. She's taken care of everyone else. She's supposed to have all the answers. You know, she's in Mm -hmm. charge. She hands down the discipline. You know, she's done all of this and she comes to this crisis of faith. Um, And again, it's not just a crisis of faith, but a crisis of, of every aspect of her life. And she has to really dig deep into the well of strength and figure out who she is now that she is so changed. 
um, by what has happened and how she's going to deal with this and how she's going to move forward from here. And is she going to accept the love and the help of friends, people she's known a long time, the hero in the story, his name is Frank, and he Mm -hmm. has been a chef and they've worked together at other Harvey establishments before El Tavar. Okay. So they've known each other a long time and she's about to turn 35, which, you know, early 1900s, 35 was old. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) As I'm past that now, I'm thinking, wow, you know, (laughs) me too. (laughs) um, it was really old, especially for a single woman. And so Mm. she's also thinking now that this horrific thing has happened to her, she's wondering, you know, is there any future for me at all? And it's, there's a lot for her that she has to deal with and move through. And from what I've heard from the reader so far, it's been really good for them and challenging and encouraging for, for the readers to go through the story with Ruth and to, to live alongside her and to learn alongside her through the story. Right. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that Ruth and Frank have known each other for a long time. Mm-hmm. What are their different roles at the Altavar and and how do their roles change maybe? So when Frank first comes to the Altavar, he is the assistant head chef, which is still a very prestigious position. Um, and he has been a chef or working in the kitchens at Harvey locations for a long time. And Ruth has been the head waitress, which is the highest position that one of the Harvey girls could hold at that, Mm. at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, So when this incident happens to her, the management and Harvey, they, they love her so much. They create another position for her because she has some physical things that keep her from being able to do the intense and strenuous job of the head waitress. So She's still very much in a supervisory position, okay. Um, but she kind of hides a lot more and it, it allows her to hide a lot more, which is not good mm, <laughs> for her yeah. as you, as you get through the story and Frank gets promoted to the head chef position. So he, this is what he's always dreamed of. And he gets to a point in the story where he questions um, for him, you know, would I give this up for Ruth? Um, would I be willing to give up everything You know, everything I've worked for and dreamed for, for so long, would I be willing to do that for her? And that's a, that's a really cool place. I think that the story brought both of the characters to. So, um, they both are older and they both, um, have supervisory positions. So, and they're well known. So right. that's, that's good. And then it's also, I think, hard in some ways. I really enjoyed creating Frank as a character. <laughs> oh, that's neat. He's a, he's a lot of fun and he's been there throughout the first two stories as well. So the readers have gone along and right. got to know him, you know, through the years. Cause it starts in 1905 and then the last book is in 1909. So is this the kind of series where you really should read the first one first? Or do they stand on their own? They do stand on their own. Like I've had a lot of people that have read either book two. um, Mm -hmm. And then they like a lot of readers have just said, hey, I just started and I read book three and now I'm going back and reading the others. So Uh. I think 
they can stand on their own two feet in the sense that you have a complete story. Um, but if you don't start at the beginning, I feel like you probably, you know, would be yearning to know more because now you understand that there's more to the story and there's other characters that they would want to know because they are in the other books. So right. in book two, it's Julia and Chris. And then in book one, it's Emma Grace and Ray. And those characters are all a big part of book three as well. Okay. Okay. So how has writing this book changed your view of history? <laughs> um, this might just be kind of random, but the one of the stories that was fun for me, I'm a research nut. I mm -hmm. love to research and totally get sucked in. And some other secondary characters that are used throughout the books are real fiction, are real historical, not fictional characters, okay. um, the Cold Brothers. And so if you visit the Grand Canyon and you go to the Grand Canyon Village and you go west down the Bright Angel Trail, mm -hmm. um, past the Eltavar, you'll actually see the Cold Brothers studio. It's still there. And okay. the Historical Society has preserved it and it's phenomenal. And it Eltavar is on the rim of the Grand Canyon, but the Cold Brother Studio is literally like hanging on the edge of oh, wow. <laughs> um, the Grand Canyon. These two brothers built this house yeah. back at the same time in um, 1905. Anyway, these guys are just <laughs> crazy. They're adventurous and wild and brilliant, and they do just some <laughs> just amazing stuff in history. And yeah. I fell in love with both of these brothers because they're so fascinating and their pictures that they took were fascinating and the steps that they took to get the pictures were, you know, everything about them was just so interesting. But decades later, they actually found a skeleton in a boat in the boathouse of one of the brothers. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and so, you know, there was some investigation and everything that went on, you know, because, um, the person had disappeared, I believe, in the late 20s or the early 30s, I think, in the Grand Canyon. And they, you know, nobody ever knew what happened to this person. So the Cold Brothers did not murder <laughs> the person who, you know, the, the skeleton was found. But it's one of those things that you wonder, why did they have somebody's bones in there? <laughs> Yeah, in their boat, in their boathouse. So looking at history in, in that sense, there's always things to me that are true. And, you know, if we would have put them in a book, they'd be like, you know, that couldn't happen. Um, <laughs> but history is just so cool. And it's one of those things that we don't have the answer to. And it's just so fun to find these things, you know. Yeah. Along the way. So for me, it's history is always new and exciting, even though we're searching into things in the past, you find something completely unexpected, like bones in a boat in a boathouse. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, that's it's so true. There's always something. I mean, there's no way that, you, that one person can know everything about history. So you're always right. going to find new stories and interesting things and that surprise you. Fun. Yes, it really does. Definitely. So you said you're a research junkie, basically. <laughs> um, so what is your research and writing process like? Oh, that's a fun question. <laughs> so I research for each book, probably six months, okay. you know, long before I write it. 
And since I have, um, you know, the past few years, I've, I've had three, four, five books. Yeah. You know, coming out each year. So the schedule, you know, is always fun because I'm normally writing one book and editing a book I've already turned in and researching, you know, for another and um, possibly, you know, just writing the synopsis for like the next proposal kind of thing. There's normally at least three books, you know, that I'm in process that I'm juggling. Wow. Um, but the research phase is what I take the most time with ahead of time. So like I said, I'll do about six months of research for each book. And so how I divide up my day, cause I do this full time. So oh, I yeah. have a planner that's just for my writing schedule. So I have all my deadlines in there and then the editorial deadlines and things like that, that'll come down the pike. And then I have so much research to do normally a day, so much writing, you know, word count that needs to be done a day. And then so much editing normally that needs to be done a day um, to okay. keep moving forward. But a lot of people have told me, well, how do you do that switching back and forth? And right. you know, for me, it actually keeps it fresh, you mm. know, um, rather than spending just eight, 10, 12 hours a day on one story. <laughs> um, I get to switch around and, you know, refresh the brain. It's kind of like getting up and moving and, you know, doing a, having a nice mile walk or something in between, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. So I walk at my desk cause I have a treadmill at my standing desk. So right. Well, that's good. That keeps my, my uh, brain spinning. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you have to do something like that. If you're, Oh, that just sounds really intense. The um, long day at the desk. It is. And you know, if I get behind like this past fall, I, had three horrific lung respiratory illnesses from October to the end of the year. And I have scarred lungs because six years ago on just this random fluke, I um, contracted pertussis. Oh no. That's whooping cough. And it was horrible. It was very, 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 very bad. Wow. And, um, so my lungs are scarred from that. And I also developed asthma after that. Oh, no. So I just do not do well with respiratory things. And, you mm-hmm. know, since COVID. <laughs> yeah, that must be a little scary. Yeah, there's just been one thing. You know, everybody, my doctor kept talking about how everybody's just getting sick one thing after another. And I was like, oh, great. And mm-hmm. it did. It happened to me. So um, I talked to my agent because I was I was really I was very, very sick and yeah. my agent talked to my publishers. And so everything got pushed back, you know, as much as they could allow, but it's not like there's a whole lot of time in my schedule either. So, you know, I did get behind and then it was really, really difficult. You know, I turned in a book and then I have another book due February 1st and I've got another book March 1st, you know, oh my so goodness, it's, um, it's a little bit crazy when something like that happens, but I've never been, you know, knocked flat for three months before. So. Right. Oh, wow. Well, I'm glad to hear you recovered and sounding, you know, good. (laughs) I still have trouble breathing, but you know, it's it's not too, too bad. Yeah, that's good. Um, and I, is that why you have, I think, do you have like five books coming out this year or is it, is that not normal? There's, there's five this year, four next year, five the next year. Oh my goodness. So that is just that's, typical. Yeah. Even, that's not normal. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, that seems like a lot. And 
now you're talking about researching for six months before writing. Do you do that for all? Because you don't write just historical fiction. You write some, um, are they contemporary suspense? Yes. yes. So do you need to do six months of research before writing those? Um, yes. <laughs> okay. I know there's other types of research besides <laughs> historical. So, Yeah. So then once you, I'd love to hear about how you, you break up your day and everything, but once you start the, like, so if you take a single book, but once you move the, from the six months of research to drafting, are you a plotter? I'm going to guess you're a plotter. What's your process? You just have that, that word count. And then once you get that draft finished, your editor takes it and, and sends it back to you with all marked up? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have written both ways, okay. plotting and seat of the pants. Because yeah creative people. And it's funny, I've had, you know, I'll be teaching a class at a conference and I'll have, I mean, the two groups of people, they'll just, you know, face off and start arguing. (laughs) And I told one group of people, I said, you know, I said, the thing is you have to realize you're both doing the same thing (laughs) because if you're plotting it out, you know, to write yourself a long synopsis, you're plotting it out by the seat of your pants. Yeah. Um, and then if you're writing the book by the seat of your pants, <laughs> you're doing the same thing. It's like, are you just going to do the short version or the long version? Right. Um, and for me, because I am a planner, um, my brain is very like my husband teases me and says I can organize the snot out of anything. Um, <laughs> if I get stressed, you know, reorganizing something makes me feel better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and as much as I hate, and I, I just really want to say that strongly, <laughs> As much as I hate writing synopses because those aren't fun, I guess, for me, Mm -hmm. um, I have learned to be disciplined to do that now because they have saved my bacon Okay, over time, um, over all these years, really learning that. And it's, I find it, I can write a whole lot faster and a lot freer. Like my brain can be freer if I have like a synopsis, I I work with three monitors. So I have one monitor that has my synopsis on it. And then I write in Scrivener and um, I'll put the little note cards and all the kind of stuff. Scrivener's fun for us little organized freaks. Yeah. And um, if I have a little bit of a structure and I realize, oh, this is where I'm going. So then I just refresh myself for each scene and look at that, get a few good points and go, oh, Um, and then I can write like the wind. Um, so wow. writing full on seat of the pants, which um, one of my books last year, I had to write that way because I changed things around and did not redo <laughs> a long synopsis. And I realized I got more stuck and mm-hmm. didn't have as much guidance and I couldn't write as fast because I was having to put so much effort into the thinking about what's happening. Yeah. And little rabbit trails, your brain, Oh, well, that might work. And then you think it through and you're like, okay, no, that won't work. So then you go down the other rabbit trail. Um, so, but again, that's just me, but understanding that, you know, I have taught a lot of classes on this and I tell people, it's like, we're all doing the same thing people. Um, and we find a lot of different roads to get us to the same place, but we're all, you know, creating, we're all doing the same thing. So find what works for you. And, and have fun with it. But I do (laughs) make myself (laughs) now be disciplined to write the long synopsis. And it has been 
a huge game changer for so many books. It makes it so much easier. And that way I can get that um, draft done in a month. Wow. Okay. So uh, you might be converting me <laughs> because honestly, I've tried, I've tried plotting and ha- it's been a disaster, but I don't know. You might, you might have me trying it for my next, <laughs> my next project. Um, that is so interesting. I love hearing about your process. Um, so have you always been a writer? Can you tell me about your path to publication? Oh, sure. Thanks. Um, so what, um, a lot of people know, like when I travel around and speak, they hear the story and I am a musician. And so I started very, very young before I can even remember with piano and voice. And that was kind of my life for Mm. the longest time, um, growing up now between music and reading, I huge avid reader. I loved story and just ate up books. Mm-hmm. So that was a huge part of my life, but my focus had been music because that was what I was training to do and competitions and all this kind of stuff. And I had a scholarship to Juilliard. Wow. And wanted to be a music major, you know, and do all of that. And it was funny because growing up, I was always told <laughs> that I was a great storyteller. Um, and you know, in creative writing classes and stuff like that, I would always get really high marks and the teachers would, would rave about it. And, you know, when you're a kid and you just, you know, my focus was somewhere else, it, music was everything, you know, and I loved it, loved music, still do. Um, but it was actually a professor in college. He was my English professor and I don't remember what it was for, but I had to write um, a creative writing type project. Mm-hmm. And he brought me into his office and he goes, Kim, <laughs> he said, you are really good at this. And he said, you're a very talented storyteller. And I was like, Oh, that's great. You know, <laughs> I was a music major sitting here going, Oh, yay!" You know, and I would always say, well, I love to read, you know, I always yes. said that. Um, so then I got married very young and we've been married 31 years. Woo. But, um, wow, that's great. Had our first baby, and he was really sick as a baby. And mm. us creative people, we need something to do with all of the creative stuff that's flowing, right? Mm-hmm. And story ideas, all kinds of stuff was just, you know, always in my mind. It was always stirring. I just really didn't think much about it. And one night I was up all night with. Um, sick baby. And I thought, well, I'm just going to start putting stories down on paper. You know, nobody will ever see this. It'll be fine. <laughs> and so I did, I wrote for years without anybody knowing. Um, <laughs> my husband already, you know, was married to a musician and we're weird, you know, I mean, just, <laughs> just admit it, we're weird. Um, and now we know why I was really weird because I'm, I was also a writer. But, <laughs> you had um, both things going for you. <laughs> So a friend of mine found some manuscripts, uh, I don't know, maybe four years later, and she was supposed to be helping me pack, and she was in in the other room reading, and she came in with this big ream of papers, and she literally whacked me over the head with this big stack of papers and threw it (laughs) on the floor (laughs) (laughs) and told me I was hiding my light under a bushel. Um, Oh, 
And she told me, she goes, you are so good at this. She goes, you are such a writer. Why didn't I know this? And, you know, I kind of crumpled in the floor and, and I was crying. It's like, I'm a musician. I don't know anything about writing. Nobody was ever supposed to see that, you know? <laughs> um, and she challenged me. She was really funny about it. And we are dear friends to this day that she told me, she said, if you don't do something with this, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And she gave me a deadline and she said, okay, you have until such and such, you know, to do something. And I, I just looked at her with this blank look because I had no idea. I didn't know any other writers. I had mm -hmm. no connection in the industry, anything music wise. Yeah, I can, you know, run with that, but I had no idea what to do with it. So I actually wrote my favorite author and that was Tracy Peterson. Oh my goodness. And <laughs> it was 1997. I think, I think I still have the original emails. Um, from us, you know, back wow. and forth. And because I thought, well, I'll write her and she's so famous, you know, she won't have any time to write me back. So then I'll tell my friend, well, I tried, you know, right. <laughs> um, but Tracy and all of her graciousness and just the beautiful person that she is, she, she wrote me back and um, it was, was years before uh, we connected again. And our daughter has a rare nerve disorder and she has a granddaughter with, with health issues. And we just mm. super connected over that. And we have been dear, dear friends for, for a quarter of a century now. <laughs> so, right. And, and written books together. Yes. Which is, that's amazing. Yeah. So she was always um, a huge mentor for me. And also I don't want to say cattle prod. She was never mean, but Tracy was always the one checking up on me. And, um, you know, like even when our daughter had to have brain surgery and I just kind of stepped back mm. from the world, you know, as we were taking care of all this stuff and, yeah. and you know, she would, she'd call me and she's like, okay, what are you working on? Mm. Um, because she really believed in me and um, encouraged me just to keep, keep moving forward. So I always tell people, people that Tracy had such a huge impact on my writing career and yeah. such a, a huge blessing that she has been over the years. And there's so many, especially like from ACFW that, that reached out and walked the journey with us through Kayla's brain surgery, through the extreme makeover house being built, you know, just all of the different facets of our lives that, writers journeyed right. with us and prayed with us and encouraged mm. us and, you know, got to walk the really, really, really hard parts of life um, with us. And I wouldn't be where I'm at without all of those beautiful people in my life. Wow. I did see some things about that on your website and I'll make sure we link to that for listeners in case they oh, okay. don't know more about your story. Um. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and what a beautiful, oh, just what, what a beautiful story. And what a beautiful um, friend that Tracy was to you. I mean, that's, yes, that's amazing. She, she has been there. We've, we always talk about how we've been through thick and thin together. And um, it has been, it has been a roller coaster ride, but what a joy to be able to do it with her. And mm -hmm to 
you know, be along for the ride with her because she's, she's just precious. And so we have spent a lot of time (laughs) together. (laughs) I would like, I'm going to pivot a little. I won't, won't spend too long on this, but I am curious how, how does it work for the two of you to write a book together? Um, Do you split up the chapters? How do you, how does that process go? I love this question. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Um, So Tracy actually had written, co-written with a couple of other people. And I had co-written with my daughter, Kayla. Oh, yeah. And uh, we had, my daughter and I had a blast doing it together. And part of that is because when you have such a close relationship with someone, uh, it just, you know, we just really clicked. And so Mm -hmm. when Kayla and I did it together, we were writing contemporary suspense. Mm. And she wrote all of the POV scenes from the young people. And I wrote all of the adult characters. Oh, neat. Because she was a teenager at the time. Yeah. And so, and people absolutely loved it. The readers just ate it up because she wrote in first person and I wrote in third. Wow. And it was unique and it was also really fresh because it wasn't, an adult trying to write a 13 year old. It was a 13 year old, you know, writing. <laughs> yeah. And we always had mother daughter um, characters in the mm-hmm. book. We were both writing mother and daughter. The first book, no safe Haven is very, very similar. The characters are very, very similar to us. And mm. the daughter has the same nerve disorder as my daughter has. And so that really made it unique. So when mm-hmm. Tracy asked me, And this is the funny part. We had been dear friends for so long and I've always had so much respect for her. I would have never (laughs) in a million years, you know, asked anything of her, you know, like that. I would have never just, it just never would have. And we're just on the phone one day and she's asking me about something else. She goes, you know what? (laughs) I'm like, what? And she goes, I think we should write together. And I literally just about fell off my chair. You know, I'm sitting at the <sighs> with Snook. And it's like, what did you just say? Um, so her process is what she did with other co-writes. And she had done many of them. Mm-hmm. So what we do is, is what she had done now um, with her first co-writes. She had been the... Uh, not the senior author, but the others, she had been the senior author. So as the senior author, that's the one who has the bigger name, uh, the bigger following, um, right? that kind of a thing. And so she and I, how we do it, the process is that we get together and we plan out the whole book. So first we'll brainstorm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's emails that go back and forth as we you know, mull it over and let it simmer in the background and we'll color code, you know, change up things in the email so we can see what gets changed when, and then we'll move to a word document, you know, and track changes and, (laughs) and all of that. And so we get the basic bones of the story. And sometimes this is 40 pages long, you know, by the time we're we're done with it. And um, she writes the long synopsis after we've done all of that and after we've done uh, cause we both do a lot of research for it. Cause both, both people have to know the, the story and the history and the location and everything really well. Mm-hmm. Then she sends me the long synopsis and then I write the whole first draft 
And so I send the first draft to her and then she adds what I call her brilliance, you know, cause she's Tracy Peterson. Um, <laughs> you know, she adds, she just weaves throughout the whole story. So right. our book needs to be 90,000 words. I'll send it to her at about 65,000 words and then mm-hmm. she adds to it and then she'll send it back to me and then I edit and I add to it and then we'll send it in to our editor. And so then at that point, then I handle all the edits that come back. Okay. And um, so I do the macro edit and the line edit and, and galleys and things like that. So the process has been really beautiful for us. The first few books I wrote the long synopsis after we did, you know, all of our chatting together, but I always tease her cause she is the queen of long <laughs> synopses. <laughs> um, uh. And so now it helps. Um, and she kind of has helped me out since I do do the bulk of the, the writing in the first draft, then she does the long synopsis and it also helps blend all of our ideas a little bit better. Right. So, um, and we've done 10 or 11 books together. I don't know which one we're on. Wow. Um, and our process is really quite smooth and, yeah, and we, we love it. There's only been one time that we disagreed about something and we weren't upset or mad or anything like that. It was, she said, I just don't know if this character needs to be here. And I said, well, I, I really think he needs to be there. <laughs> And um, ended up, it was good. You know, the character stayed, but we had a, a good discussion about it. And, mm-hmm. uh, but it's kind of the only time we've ever had anything really, um, you know, that we didn't agree on. Right. That's amazing. Really connected with the story. So. Yeah, that's great. Well, this is a question I ask all my guests. Okay. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Oh, that's a great question. (laughs) Um, Especially from, I'm going to answer from the point of view that I've received so many letters from my readers on. Okay. um, That they realize how much history changes their lives now. Mm. And the fact that we have the opportunity in front of us to learn from history. And yet either we get too busy or we don't pay attention or, you know, we're not taught enough history (laughs) Mm -hmm. life, especially nowadays when we have everything at our fingertips. And yet I feel like people know less and less about history because, you know, they're sucked into social media or, or whatever. Um, and I always like to do dear reader letters and author notes. So I'll put one at the beginning just to kind of forewarn them maybe about stuff or give them an introduction Mm -hmm. giving stuff away. And then I always point them to the note that's going to be at the end of the book. And we try to put links and stuff like that in there. um, So that if people want to dig for themselves, they, they can go look up some more. Right. Um, And we put stuff like that on the blog and things like that. Um, So it's powerful to see if we just take the time, what we can learn from, from history and how applicable it is today. Um, we wrestle with all kinds of stuff day in and day out. And a lot of times going back and reading a historical novel is great because you go back and you realize, ha ha, they had to deal with it too, right? Yeah. <laughs> it might be a little bit different, but they're dealing with the same, you know, um, really big conundrum, you know, that I'm having to deal with or having to make a decision over. And 
Right. So I love that history impacts us so much in that sense. If we just take the time, you know, to pay attention to it. Hmm. Yeah, that's so true. Well, Kimberly, this has been a fantastic conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Um, the best way is just to find me at my website and it has all my links there. It's KimberlyWoodhouse.com. And even if you spell my name wrong, I think it'll take you to the right place. <laughs> Great. Um, think of, even if you put in KimWoodhouse.com, um, you'll go to my website. And so all the social media links are, are there and contact forms are there as well. Great. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kimberly. I know I certainly did. Um, Now, if you want to find links to the things we talked about, the Harvey girls, Fred Harvey, the Cole brothers, um, even Tracy Peterson, and the, the episode I did with Tracy Peterson, I will link to all of that in the show notes. So you can find the show notes either in your favorite listening app where you're listening right now, or on my website, at alisontreat.com slash blog. That is where all the show notes for all the episodes live. So you can go there. And, you know, I like to tell you about some action steps to take on every show because this is how you help keep historical fiction unpacked alive. The first thing you can do is you can subscribe to the show in whatever app you use. You just subscribe or follow the show. In Apple Podcasts, it's called following the show now instead of subscribing. And then after you subscribe or follow, please rate and review the show. It only takes like 30 seconds to leave a short review and it doesn't need to be long. But the more reviews we get, the more ratings we get, the more listeners will hear about Historical Fiction Unpacked. It will like show this show to them if it's highly rated. So um, those are some things you can do. Also, if you'd like to join the conversation about this show every week, we talk about it in Facebook on the Facebook group. It's called Historical Fiction Unpacked podcast group. You can search for it on Facebook or you can get there from the show notes. You can also follow us on Instagram at Historical Fiction Unpacked. And you, if you would like to support the show with your pocketbook, I would be ever so grateful. You can do that via Patreon on patreon.com slash Allison Treat. You have to spell my name right there. A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T. So that's Allison with one L. Um, on Patreon, now, the biggest benefit is that you're just supporting the show. You help keep the lights on here, which is awesome. But you can also, if you support the show at $5 or more per month, you can get a review video. I will um, send you, well, you'll get a video posted in there that you'll have access to every month about the books that I've read and what I really think of them and like the ins and outs, a much more detailed review than I might mention on the show here. There are other benefits on Patreon, so check it out at patreon.com slash Treat. Now, as usual, I love to leave you guys with a quote. And this one is about the Grand Canyon, of course. It's from John Wesley Powell. The wonders of the Grand Canyon cannot be adequately represented in symbols of speech, nor by speech itself. Of course, we keep trying, don't we? So thanks for listening and keep reading historical fiction, my friends. I will talk to you again next week. 